Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're studying verses 38 to 42. We started in the passage last week. I'll review briefly a little bit of what we talked about just to get us back in to where we left off. But let's first read the passage itself. Beginning in verse 38, it says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. This passage has led to uh, some confusion in many people's minds. Uh, people have used this passage to teach pacifism, a conscientious objection to war against capital punishment. Uh, that's not an untypical interpretation. Uh, and so it's confused a lot of people. Uh, so last week we looked at the uh, principle of the Mosaic Law and, uh, and what the Mosaic Law actually taught. And that's there in verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That quote's taken directly from the Old Testament, specifically Exodus 21-24, Leviticus 24-20, and Deuteronomy 19-21. When you look back at those verses, you find that they are actually, that this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is actually part of a longer list that includes hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, and fracture for fracture. Uh, so... Uh, but what we saw last week is that all three of those times relate to a civil law situation, a, a judicial law. Uh, they were related to something occurring within the purview of a duly constituted authority, such as a judge or a magistrate. Uh, in the law of Moses, the principle of punishment uh, to match the crime had two basic purposes. The first was to curtail further crime, and the second purpose was to prevent excessive punishment based on personal vengeance and angry retaliation. So this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is not a statement which in any way related to personal relationships. Uh, but in fact, that's precisely what the Pharisees had done with it. They took a divine principle of judicial jurisprudence, a divine principle for the courts, and they made it a matter of personal vendettas. Uh, instead of seeing this law as a limit on how they were to carry out the law, they saw it as being an authorization for their personal acts of vengeance against others. And so they would take whatever steps they could through the courts to get even with those who they felt had harmed or offended them in some way. Uh, they were doing everything they could to get even with anyone who offended them in any way, and they justified it on the basis of their misinterpretation of this Old Testament law. And they turned a regulation that limited how the courts administered justice into a command to get even with their opponents. Uh, they turned this rule into one which was not only for judicial courts, but also for personal retaliation, private matters. And so they used the Old Testament scriptures to justify their vindictive tempers that forgave no one for anything. And now Jesus comes along and he upsets their entire apple cart. And so that's what we want to see now, how he approaches the matter. And so that's where we stopped last time. So we want to pick up with the perspective of divine truth as taught by Jesus in verses 39 to 42. Now, verse 39 says, I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. It's been so misinterpreted. There are liberal commentators and first-year college students who read that and they say, do not resist an evil person. Well, that means that Jesus was teaching pacifism. Uh, so we're to just let people walk all over us, abuse us, use us, take everything we have. We're never to resist an evil person. 
And so there are people who teach that Christians should not join the military or the police force because they uh, would, should never use force against evil. That's the basis of the Jehovah's Witnesses position, uh, that they are conscientious objectors when it comes to serving in a fighting capacity in the military. Uh, but that isn't at all what Jesus is saying. And people who take that approach really miss the whole point. They miss the fact that God commanded Joshua and the Israelites to wipe out all of the evil idol-worshiping Canaanites when they conquered the land. They miss the point that King David killed many of God's enemies when he established his kingdom and God refers to him as a man after his own heart. Uh, they miss the fact that when Jesus saw the disgraceful profaning of God's temple, he made a scourge of cords and physically drove out the sacrifice sellers and money changers. Uh, they missed the fact that when Paul saw Peter engaging in sinful hypocrisy and leading all the other Jews in the church in Antioch to refuse to eat with the Gentiles, he rebuked him to his face. Uh, they missed the fact that when Paul heard about the Corinthians tolerating incestuous sexual immorality in their church, he rebuked them for their arrogance and passed judgment on the man that he would be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In other words, that he would die if he didn't repent. Uh, and Paul urges us to resist evil when he commanded that a sinning elder is to be rebuked in the presence of all so that the rest may be fearful of sinning. And so, and we're commanded in scripture to resist the devil. So we are called to resist evil, whether it's Satan or evil within the church or evil that attacks the glory and honor of our Lord and Savior or the evil that attacks and assaults others by war or by criminal acts. The fact that the principle of non-resistance does not apply to governmental authorities is clear from many passages in Scripture, primarily Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. Uh, in Romans 13, 4, Paul says that the government is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So the government is given to us to protect the good and punish the evil. Now, I'll be the first to say that the government hasn't and doesn't always do that very well. Uh, in fact, history has produced some pretty evil governments. Uh, but that is the result of man's rebellion and sin against God's intended purpose for government. But when we fight against the government, we're fighting against a God-ordained institution. So when the government sends our military into war, we are to support our government and our military, and if needed, to fight to defend our country and its people. The same with serving in law enforcement. The purpose for which I served more than 38 years in law enforcement had nothing to do with trying to bring retribution uh, on evil people, it had to do with trying to protect our society from the bad guys and to maintain order and peace. Uh, in the process of doing that, I often had to take actions against evil people uh, by arresting them and incarcerating them and testifying against them in court. Uh, but I never acted on my own personal behalf. Uh, at all times and in every way, I acted on behalf of the government and its laws. Um, I was the government's representative. I was not carrying out my own personal vendetta against evil. And so then, what did Jesus mean when he said, do not resist an evil person? Well, the word translated resist means to set against or oppose. And in this context, it obviously refers to harm done to us personally by someone who is evil. Jesus is speaking about personal resentment personal spite, uh, personal vengeance. It's the same truth that Paul taught in Romans 12, 17 and 12, 19, uh, where he said, never pay back evil for evil to anyone and never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeful retaliation has no place in society at large and even less place among those who belong to Christ. Uh, we're called to overcome someone's evil toward us by doing good to them. Uh, Romans 12, 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
So then after establishing the basic principle that we're not to resist an evil person, Jesus then picks out four basic human rights that he uses to illustrate the principle of non-retaliation. They are dignity, security, liberty, and property. And he gives four one-sentence illustrations of what he means. Each one is culturally specific, but they give us general principles for our lives today. Uh, these principles are not for everyone, they're for only for those who are followers of Christ, believers. The first one is dignity. Look at verse 39. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now a sharp slap across someone's face is obviously an affront to the person's dignity. Uh, you hear people say all the time, I have the right to be honored as a human being. I should be respected. I'm a human being and I won't be treated that way. I have rights. I have dignity. You can't demean me. You can't dishonor me. And all of those things are true. Uh, although most people don't really know why they have the right to human dignity. Why do we have that right? The reason is because man is created in the image of God. And God demands that we treat others with respect. We are to treat his creature that's created in his image with respect. Uh, and because of, but because of the depravity of man, you're not always going to get it. Sometimes you're going to be treated like you're some kind of an animal or a worm or something. Uh, people are going to treat you terribly. They may treat you that way in the grocery store, in a restaurant. Someone in your family may treat you that way. Uh, so it, that's, that's, the, that's just life. We're going to face people who, who insult our dignity. Now the act of slapping someone across the face uh, is considered a terrible insult. In fact, the Jews said that slapping someone in the face was among the most demeaning, contemptuous acts that you could do to them. Uh, to strike someone somewhere else on their body might do more physical harm, but a slap on the face was an attack on the person's honor, and it was a great indignity. Uh, it was up there with spitting in someone's face or striking them with the sole of your sandal, which is another cultural thing that was a great insult. Uh, it was to be treated with, when you were slapped in the face, it was that they were treating you with disdain or less than human. Uh, Epictetus was a Greek philosopher of the first century AD, and he was originally a slave until he was uh, gained his freedom. And he once said, quote, a slave would rather be thrashed with a whip than slapped with the back of his master's hand, end quote. Um, it was considered that demeaning. Uh, so that, would, that should give greater meaning to what was happening when Jesus was on trial before the Sanhedrin. Uh, Matthew records that once they had decided that he deserved to die, they spat on his face, beat him with their fist, and it says, and others slapped him. Uh, they were treating him in the most demeaning way that they could treating him as if he were some kind of worthless animal. Uh, they intentionally struck him in that manner because it was understood to be an extreme insult. On the contrary, then, to what someone might think, here in Matthew 5, Jesus is not describing a physical assault that's carried out in a sudden flash of anger, but rather he's describing a very traditional calculated insult. Uh, and notice the fact that Jesus specifically mentions the right cheek. Why is that significant? Because it tells us that Jesus is describing a backhanded slap. Since most people are right-handed, uh, to strike someone across the right cheek requires a backhanded slap to reach their right cheek. Uh, and according to rabbinic law, to hit someone with the back of the hand was twice as insulting as hitting them with the flat of the hand. Uh, the back of the hand meant calculated contempt, withering disdain. Uh, 
It meant that you were scorned as being inconsequential, a nothing. So why would Jesus speak about being slapped across the face by someone who intends to insult your dignity as a human being? Well, if there was ever a time when someone would want to get even with someone who struck them to get their eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, it would be after such a degrading insult of being slapped across the face. Uh, it would, that would be the time when most Jews in that culture would rise up in fierce anger and attempt to retaliate and get even with the person who struck them. But there's so much more here than what you may realize on the surface. You see, when Jesus spoke about being slapped on the right cheek, he was describing an insult that comes because of one's faith. It was an insult for which a Jew could seek legal satisfaction according to the law of lex talionis. We talked about that last week, lex talionis, the Latin for the law of retaliation. If someone insulted a Jew by calling him a heretic and slapping him across the face, he was allowed to take that person to court for blaspheming him as a heretic and he could seek monetary damages for that. Jesus says, don't do it. Now, don't forget that Jesus is speaking not only to the Pharisees who were listening to him that day and thinking that they were righteous, but he's also speaking to his disciples who were there. They were just as much a part of his intended audience as the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees would hear this illustration and recognize that they could take someone to court for slapping them, uh, for questioning their faith in Yahweh and slapping them across the face. But Jesus knew that in very short order, those who followed him as children of his kingdom would be branded as heretics and slapped across the face as an insult. Uh, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the great German Bible scholar, uh, Joachim Jeremias explained what Jesus' words would have communicated to his disciples. And I thought it was so good, I want to read it to you. Here's what he wrote, quote, Jesus, and this is very important for an understanding of this matter, is not speaking of a simple insult. It is much more the case of a quite specific insulting blow, the blow given to the disciples of Jesus as heretics. It is true that this is not specifically stated, but it follows from the observation that in every instance where Jesus speaks of insult, persecution, anathema, dishonor to the disciples, he is concerned with outrages that arise because of the discipleship itself. If you're dishonored as a heretic, says Jesus, then you should not go to law about it. Rather, you should show yourselves to be truly my disciples by the way in which you bear the hatred and the insult, overcome the evil, forgive the injustice, end quote. So Jesus is saying, if you're dishonored as a heretic, you should not go to law about it. Rather, you should show yourself to be truly one of my disciples by the way in which you bear the hatred and the insult, overcome the evil, forgive the injustice. You should lovingly absorb the insult. In other words, when your dignity is taken away, when you're disdained and dishonored and demeaned, when you're arrogantly humiliated for Christ's sake, you must not respond by getting even, by getting your legal pound of flesh, as it were. Uh, that's what it means. And when it says, turn the other cheek to him also, it doesn't mean let him have two shots at you and then beat him to a pulp, okay? That's not the idea. The idea is that we are to swallow our pride and give up our rights to fairness and restitution. Uh, you see, it's the non-retaliating, non-vengeful, forgiving, loving spirit which characterized Jesus that we are to have. Just as Christ did not retaliate against those who assaulted him, uh, whether verbally or physically, we're to follow his example. The point that he's saying is this, when you're demeaned and dishonored and your dignity is beaten down, don't retaliate, let it happen again. Now someone might say, but in John 18, 
when Jesus was on trial before Caiaphas. The soldier slapped him and he didn't turn the other cheek. But that misses the point. What did he say? He said, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, then why did you strike me? Uh, he didn't try to get even. He merely pointed out that if what he said was right, the man had no reason to strike him. Uh, and he turned his, other, his cheek plenty of times uh, because shortly thereafter, Pilate gave them permission to crucify him. And John 19 says that the soldiers gave him slaps in the face. Uh, in Isaiah 50, verse 6, God spoke concerning Christ's suffering. He said, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Uh, so no one can rightly say that Jesus didn't turn the other cheek. He, they spit on him. They rammed a crown of thorns down on his head. They pulled out his beard. They mocked him. They beat him. They whipped him. And then as he hangs naked on the cross, suffering in great pain, bleeding and slowly suffocating, he says, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. Uh, what Jesus is saying is this. When because of my name, someone treats you in a way that is less than you deserve. When someone takes the right to dignity that you have, don't retaliate. Let them slap you again. Take as much as they want to give you, but don't retaliate. Uh, if you're worried about your dignity, just remember, one day you're going to be a child of God made in the image of Jesus Christ, and you're going to stay that way forever. And God's going to pour out all the goodness of his great grace on you forever and ever. So if you're worried about your dignity, just hang in there. Eventually you will get it. Uh, don't fight for it here. Because if you do, you're going to disavow the fact that you're a child of God and that you're related to Jesus Christ because you won't be acting in a way that is consistent with him. Well, there's a second human right that Jesus uses to illustrate the principle of non-retaliation. And that is our security. Look at verse 40. He says, If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Now this is a very interesting illustration. There are two words here that you need to understand in order to understand what he say, means. The, the first word is shirt, which, uh, which refers to a type of tunic that was worn as an undergarment uh, against the body. Uh, it was a long robe. It stopped about halfway between the knees and the ankles. Uh, the average person would probably own two to four of those. Uh, a poor man might only own one, but uh, most people owned a couple or three of them at least. Uh, the second word is coat, which was an outer garment, which was ankle length, and it was a bit heavier and thicker. It was not only used to stay warm on a cool day, but it was also a blanket at night. Uh, you might be aware that in the old American West, uh, the cowboys often wore a long coat that was called a duster. And uh, it was used to keep the dust off their clothes while they were out on the trail, and it was used as a blanket on cold nights. It's very similar in terms of its purpose and use as the coat or cloak that Jesus is talking about here. Now, under Old Testament law, if you wanted to borrow something from your neighbor, you could give him your coat or cloak as your pledge, your promise that you would return the item so that you could get your coat back. Uh, and according to Exodus 22, 26 and 27, he, ha he had to return your coat to you before sunset because otherwise you would have nothing else to sleep in to stay warm. Once again, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here because he knew that many of them would be impoverished and only have a limited amount of clothing. You see, in those days, if someone wanted to sue you, if you didn't have any money, the court would often require the judgment be paid in clothing. Clothing was a far more precious item than it is today. Uh, they didn't have a closet full of various shirts and coats. 
so a person's clothing was one of the most important and precious things he or she owned. Remember that Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience. People who knew the Old Testament requirement that you had to return a man's coat before nightfall. So he says, if some evil person wants to sue you for your shirt, don't resist him. Give him your coat also. Now that's very significant because under the Old Testament law, a man had an inalienable right to keep his coat. And yet Jesus says, don't just give him your shirt, but voluntarily give him your coat also. Now you say, wait a minute, I got a guy trying to sue me. I'm going to countersue him and make his life as miserable as he's making mine. No, Jesus says, if he wins a judgment against you, give him more than he won. Uh, he's stressing the importance of not retaliating against your enemies. Now, to Jesus' Jewish audience, this would have been absolutely devastating. They would immediately jump up and say, wait a minute. We know what Exodus 22, 26, and 27 says. It says that a man's coat can only be given as a pledge because you have to return it by nightfall. And I have a right to security. You can't strip me naked and leave me out in the elements. I only own one coat. That's all I've got. The law is on my side. And Jesus comes along and he says, look, if someone hauls you into court and you have to give him your shirt, don't be grudging. Don't be angry. Don't be bitter. Don't be retaliating. Show him you're really sorry that it ever happened. Show him that you're so gracious you're willing to give up all that you've got left to keep you warm. It's your last little bit of security, but you're willing to give that to him also. Now that'll shock him. That'll show him the love of Christ and that'll show him what it means in Luke 6, 27 and 28, where it says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. If someone sues you and tries to take you for a bunch of money, just to show that your heart is right towards him, give him more than what he even asked for. That's what he's saying. You'll blow their mind. Keep in mind that evil men may take everything you own in this life they can't take one penny away from the heavenly rewards you're going to experience in the next life. You will experience an eternity of unending blessing and benefits which no one can ever take away from you. So don't be so consumed with your rights in this life that you fail to demonstrate the generosity and graciousness of Jesus Christ to others, even to your enemies. As Bible scholar Donald Carson puts it, what is at stake here is a principle. Even those things which we regard as our rights by law, we must be prepared to abandon. Let me add one more thing before we go on. Don't be in a hurry to sue other people. In the first place, 1 Corinthians 6 says that you have no right to sue another believer at all. Um, Paul said it, it's better for you to be wronged and defrauded than to sue another believer. Uh, so be careful about listening to those who would encourage you to sue every time someone does something to you that costs you money. Uh, there are times and places in which it is permissible and appropriate to sue some secular entity or the like, but our heart attitude should not be one that goes around seeking to get everything we can out of everybody. Uh, during my years here at Lakeside, I have been involved in trying to resolve at least four incidents in which believers were either threatening to sue or did sue other believers. Those were horrible situations and were some of the most vexing things I've had to deal with as an elder. Uh, so please don't do that. Uh, obey the word and choose to be defrauded and wronged rather than to sue another Christian. Uh, there's a third illustration Jesus uses, a third human right that his children are to willingly surrender, and it is their liberty. Their liberty. Look at verse 41. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. God's original intention was for everyone created in his image to live in freedom. 
Human bondage and slavery were consequences of the fall and had no part in God's original plan for his creation. And ever since the fall, man has enslaved his fellow man. As you well know, our nation endured a horrible civil war in which one of the primary issues was slavery. Uh, and there are some people who seem to act like the United States is the only country that ever enslaved anyone. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth, depending on which historian you read. Uh, somewhere between 20 to 30 percent of all the people in the Roman Empire were considered to be slaves. Uh, and in Italy, which was obviously the epicenter of the Roman Empire, about 30 to 40 percent of the population were slaves. Uh, and long before the Roman Empire, we read in Scripture of the Assyrians and other groups enslaving people. And the Mosaic Law even sets up laws regarding how slaves were, re to, were to be treated, providing protections for slaves, something which no other system of law did at that time. Now, let me chase a bunny to its hole for a moment before we get back to our text here in Matthew. People always ask, well, why didn't God just state in Scripture that slavery is wrong and should be banned? Why did he regulate it rather than simply outlawing it? Uh, well, God revealed from the beginning what his desire was for human relationships. In Leviticus 19.18, God said that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And in Matthew 22.37-40, Jesus said that loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and Strength was the greatest commandment, and loving our neighbor as ourselves is the second greatest commandment. And then he said that the entire Old Testament depended on those two commandments. Well, if we love God as we should, and our neighbors as we should, we will not enslave them. Uh, we will desire freedom for them as we desire it for ourselves. So it's relatively easy to make an argument that Scripture does not uh, argue that scripture argues against slavery. But rather than simply banning the practice, which was fully developed in all cultures before the writing of any of the scriptures, God's approach is to change the heart of man so that slavery dies from the inside out. God is far more interested in changing men's hearts so that he's transformed into the image of God than merely bringing about social reform. Uh, you can ban all kinds of things, but if you don't change the heart of man, you do nothing to change his heart towards his fellow man. Uh, all, the gospel, all, all the law does is reveal the sinfulness of man's heart. Uh, it takes the gospel to transform his heart. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones commented on how the church often misses this point when it tries to reach the world. He said the church has been trying to preach morality and ethics without the gospel as a basis. It has been preaching morality without godliness and it simply does not work. It never has done and it never will, end quote. Well, that's the point I'm making about slavery. When an Old Testament Jew loved and worshiped and obeyed Yahweh and he treated his slaves like employees, rather than slaves, and sometimes even like a member of his family. Uh, just go back and read sometime how the men of God in the Old Testament treated the slaves who were a part of their household. They were kind and generous to them. Uh, Abraham was uh, even ready to make his slave, Eliezer, his heir if the Lord didn't give him a son. Uh, Boaz treated the men who worked for him with kindness and graciousness, even though some were slaves and some were day laborers. When we come to the New Testament, we find that the scriptures eliminated the abuses of slavery by teaching that believers are to treat all people as Christ would treat them. In Philemon, the apostle Paul instructed Philemon to treat his runaway slave who became a believer as a brother in Christ. As Bible scholar Martin Vincent states, quote, the principles of the gospel not only curtail slavery's abuses, but it destroyed the thing itself for it could not exist without its abuses. To destroy its abuses was to destroy it, end quote. The point is, is that the transformation of the hearts of individuals by the gospel can overcome social ills such as slavery. Rather than simply instituting social reform without changing the heart, 
God's approach is to change men's hearts by the means of the gospel, which will result in social reform. That's the only way to achieve true, lasting social reform. But getting back to our text here in verse 41, we're faced with a loss of freedom, a loss of our liberty. And how are we as children of the kingdom to respond to that? And we read it before, but here's what it says. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, to understand this little verse, you have to understand some historical background. Now, I'm sure you remember, you all remember that in the Old West, there was this mail delivery system known as the Pony Express. Uh, for all the acclaim it gets in human history, most people don't know that it only lasted 18 months until it went bankrupt uh, and out of business because of the development of the telegraph. Uh, but we did not invent the Pony Express. Uh, it was the Persians who developed it. Uh, the Persians had a very sophisticated postal system known as the Persian Royal Post. Uh, they established way stations a day's journey apart all over the Persian Empire. And it was quite large at the time. And this took place during the time of Esther. In fact, uh, in Esther 3, 13 and 3.15 and, 3, and 8.10, it talks about those mail couriers uh, delivering messages by horseback throughout the Roman, I mean, the, the uh, Persian Empire. Uh, the Persian term for these men was angaras. Uh, it is a word that uh, they had actually borrowed from the Babylonian language. Uh, these angaras would ride on horseback from dawn till sunset, uh, a day's journey, and they would stop to rest, refresh their horses, pick up provisions, and then the next morning, they would take off on the next leg of their route. Well, if anything happened to the Angaras who was carrying the mail, maybe he got sick or injured or whatever, he was authorized by the Persian government to conscript a citizen he encountered along the way and force him to get on the horse and finish the day's journey. Uh, if the citizen had his own horse, the courier could requisition it too and press them both into service to finish that day's journey. So the guy who was suddenly pressed into service as a mail courier became the Angaras. Years later, that word trickled down into the Greek language and they turned it into a verb, Angareo, Angaruo, Angaruo, uh, which meant to compel someone to render such uh, or any kind of service. And so we find it here in verse 41, translated as forces to go. Okay, this word is used two other times in scripture, and they're both about the same event. In Matthew 27, 32 and Mark 15, 21, we're told that when Jesus was carrying his cross to Golgotha, to be crucified, he could no longer carry it. So it says the Roman soldiers found a man of Cyrene named Simon who they pressed into service, same word, to bear his cross, okay? They just grabbed Simon and forced him to carry the cross. Can you imagine if we had a rule like that in our society? You're just driving down the road, suddenly you get pulled over by a police officer, he comes up to your car and says, Sir, I don't know what you were planning today, but I've got this package for you to take to Tallahassee immediately. And you say, But I'm just going up to Palm Harbor to see a sick friend. <laughs> he says, That doesn't matter. You're northbound on US 19 now, so just keep going to Tallahassee. That's the way it was in Persia. Um, that was one of the uh, causes of the War of 1812, was the British were impressing um, yeah. American sailors into the British Navy. Yeah. Yeah, just took them. Well, I, I don't imagine people traveled along the roads that were used as postal routes very often in the, uh, in the Persian Empire because they wouldn't want to be pressed into service. Now, during Jesus' time, there was a Roman law that said a Roman soldier could force a citizen to carry his pack for him. However, he could only force him to do it for one Roman mile, which was 1,000 paces. Uh, just a little shorter than our modern mile. Uh, and this was common. Roman soldiers would often tell someone to carry their pack for them. Uh, the law was designed to relieve the soldier of the burden of carrying a heavy pack. 
but it was a great inconvenience to the civilians and exasperated and infuriated many a proud Jew. Uh, remember, they were already oppressed by Rome. This just added insult to injury. Uh, the Jews hated the Romans, and now they had to carry the pack and whatever it contained that might be used against their own people uh, by their enemy. And outside of combat, the Roman soldier was probably never more hated than when he forced someone to carry his pack. And Jesus is saying, when one of those soldiers infringes on your liberty and says, hey, you, carry my pack one mile, Jesus says, go two miles. As one Bible scholar put it, quote, don't go a mile with bitter and obvious resentment. Go two miles with cheerfulness and with a good grace. What Jesus is saying is, don't be always thinking of your liberty to do as you like. Be always thinking of your duty and your privilege to be of service to others. When a task is laid on you, even if the task is unreasonable and hateful, don't do it as a grim duty to be resented. Do it as a service to be gladly rendered, end quote. You see, well, that's, you say, that's a little hard to do. That's right. That's the attitude of your heavenly father. If God only went the first mile with us, we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? But he's carried our burdens far beyond that, hasn't he? If Christ had only come and healed and loved and performed astounding miracles, but stopped when it came time for the cross, we'd all be going to hell. But he obeyed the will of his father that he go all the way to the cross and the grave. So don't be concerned with your liberty any more than you're concerned with your security and your dignity. God will give you the freedom of the sons of God. God will give you the security of his home in heaven forever. God will give you the dignity of the image of Jesus Christ. So don't chase the things here that destroy the testimony that God wants you to bear. I think that's one of the problems I see with American evangelical Christianity. We have had it so soft for the past 245 years living in a country where we have had freedom to worship how we want, when we want, where we want. We've had the freedom to write books, publicly proclaim the gospel on radio and television. We've been afforded so many rights. We've come to, to think that we must always be entitled to those rights, uh, that no one should be allowed to say or do anything which might infringe on those rights. But God never promised us that it would always be that way. Uh, in fact, I think we all see these freedoms being eroded away by court rulings and legislative acts as our society becomes increasingly lawless and godless. Uh, and our religious freedom will be one of the first things to go because the tenets of our faith are opposed to the sinful actions of the culture. And since the godless culture controls the government and the courts that make the laws, we find ourselves to be, we will find ourselves to be marginalized pariahs in the society. Sadly, many American evangelicals think our, their hope lies in electing the right politicians. Um, they seem to have forgotten our only hope is found in Jesus Christ. Uh, we must rest in him and his sovereign purposes for us and his care for us. Politicians of every party will let you down uh, because they will sell you out in a heartbeat if it, means standing, uh, if it means that standing with you will cost them votes or power. Uh, I'm not saying that you don't vote for politicians who seem to be the most supportive of biblical positions. All I'm saying is don't trust them to always do what they promise. Uh, instead, put your trust in the one who promised to never leave you or forsake you. He'll be with you even if everything around you collapses and you lose your liberty. Uh, believers in other countries have been living with this for years and they understand what Jesus is saying here far better than we do. You don't need to tell the believers in China, Vietnam, or North Korea or Iran, that they're to be joyful in the Lord in the face of lost liberties and that they should go the extra mile in order to reflect the servant attitude of Christ to those around them because they live it every single day. There's one last one. Let me see. Let me see how much I've got here. Well, let me do it. We'll see. Uh, maybe not. We'll see. Property. Final illustration, 42. Give to, to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You know, we the last thing we hang on to is what we own, right? Possessiveness is another characteristic of fallen human nature. We dislike giving up, even temporarily, that which belongs to us. 
someone comes to you and says, hey, can I borrow your van? I need to take my sister and her two kids to the airport and my car isn't big enough. And what happens? You have this mental conversation with yourself uh, and uh, you say, well, let's see, she wants to borrow the van, but I know for a fact she's had two accidents in the last two few years. Yes, they were minor backing accidents. Only one of them was her fault. But what if she does it in my van? Uh, and I saw her sister's kids the other day. They run around all the time with muddy shoes and sticky hands. I'll have to have the entire inside of the vehicle detailed. And so you go through this whole thing in your mind, wondering if you, what you should say or do desperately, trying to think of a good excuse why you can say no. And don't sit there and say, I don't own a van, so he isn't talking about me. Yes, I am. <laughs> It doesn't matter what the item is, whether it's a vehicle or a house or a tool or whatever, we have all had those thoughts run through our head. I know I certainly have. We're possessive about things. And we often forget that nothing truly owns us and that we're only stewards of what belongs to God. But as far as other people are concerned, we do have a right to keep that which we possess. By right, it's ours to use or dispose of as we see fit. But that right too can be placed on the altar of obedience to Christ if required. So what does Jesus say about your property? He says, give to him who asks of you. You say, Bruce, well, there's got to be some more qualifiers in that verse. Surely Jesus means for us to use some prudence. Well, that's a given. I think it implies that the person has a real need. I think you need to be very careful about those you help out uh, among the beggars on our corners because you just reinforce their begging. But when someone you meet truly has a need and he or she has no resources to, to meet that, you need to give to them. And the word give is an imperative. It is a command. Jesus didn't say, consider giving him such and such or think about meeting his need. He commanded us, give to him. The issue here is not what someone has that they want to borrow from you. The issue is your heart. Jesus is saying, this is the kind of heart you ought to have. And if you don't see this in you, it's a great evidence that your heart is not right before God. When someone wants to borrow what you have, give it to him. You have here the principle of self-sacrificing generosity. Back in Deuteronomy 15, 7 and 8, the, the Mosaic Law laid down the principle. It says, if there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him, and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need and whatever he lacks. Does that mean we give every freeloader and panhandler who comes along uh, whatever he wants? No. The command was to the Israelites, God's chosen people, to help their poor Israelite brother brothers. For us, the application is we're to help our poor Christian brothers and sisters. In Luke's parallel account, in Luke 6, 34 and 35, Jesus explains further how we're to treat our enemies. He says, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind, ungrateful, and evil men. In other words, lending to someone, expecting that they will repay you, doesn't earn you any blessings from God. Because even the unregenerate do that. Instead, we're to love our enemies and demonstrate that love by lending whatever they need, expecting nothing in return. That's the kind of attitude the Lord rewards because he, him, he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil people. You say, but Lord, they treated me so wrong. They've taken advantage of me in the past. Why should I do anything for them? Well, Donald Carson provides some wise words. He writes, the burden of the passage is this. Christ will not tolerate a mercenary, tight-fisted, penny-pinching attitude, which is the financial counterpart to, counterpart to a legalistic understanding of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Don't be asking yourself all the time, what's in it for me? What can I get out of it? End quote. You see, the point is that we aren't trying to get even with everyone. We don't say, well, back when I had a financial need, I asked him to loan me some money and even though he had plenty, he refused to do so. Now that he's in need, let him suffer like he made me suffer. No, the attitude, the idea is that we are to give to that person, not expecting anything in return. That's the attitude. That's the spirit of Christ. If the person has a genuine need, we don't look at the past and say, it's a financial eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And you give to that person, you give him all that he needs if it's in your power to do so. Don't fall prey to tokenism. Don't buy off your conscience. Be generous. 
once again, Donald Carson uh, explains the principle very succinctly. He says, the legalistic mentality which dwells on retaliation and so-called fairness makes much of one's rights. What Jesus is saying in these verses more than anything else is that his followers have no rights. They do not have the right to retaliate and wreck their conscience. They do not have the right to their possessions, nor to their time and money. Even their legal rights may sometimes be abandoned. Since it would completely miss the point to interpretate, interpret verse 41, for example, to mean that the follower of Christ would be prepared to go two miles, but not one inch further. Personal self-sacrifice displaces personal retaliation. For this is the way the Savior himself went, the way of the cross. And the way of the cross, not notions of right and wrong, is the Christian's principle of conduct. That's the way, that's the key to doing it. George Mueller had it. Uh, God blessed his ministry so much that by the time he died, he had provided for over 10,000 orphans in his orphanage in Bristol, England, had established 117 schools in which offered Christian education to more than 120,000 children. And people wondered why God had blessed him. And in his ministry, he wrote out these words. There was a day when I died, utterly died to George Mueller and his opinions, his preferences, his taste and his will. I died to the world by to its approval and its censure. I died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends. And since then, I've studied only to show myself approved to God. You see, that's the key. That's that's the key. So when Christ changes our hearts so that we no longer consider it our duty to get even, uh, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth is fine for the courts, not for our relationships with others. Uh, so that is the key. Let me see. Well, I guess we'll stop there. Consider it wrapped up. Ran over, but that's okay. Uh, let me uh, close this with prayer. And uh, we'll leave. <laughs> Father, we come to you and we recognize that everything we have comes from you. Uh, everything we own, everything that happens to us comes because of your sovereign providential purposes. Your words here are hard, Lord. They're impossible apart from your enabling. So we just pray that you would work in us to give us a righteousness so that we don't hold on to our rights and insist on people being fair to us. That we would be willing to be hurt, willing to be vulnerable, because as we do that, the gospel will spread as people see us and want to know how we can live this way. Thank you we, for all that we've learned today that you've taught us. We pray now as we go into the next service that we would joyfully praise you for all that you are doing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.